Father, we glorify you this morning. We thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you for the, the blessing and privilege of just being able to gather together as the body of Christ in this place, that we could be here, that we could sing songs of praise to you, that we could approach your throne boldly and seek your favor. We do so this morning, uh, Lord, seeking really your glory in all that we do. Father, I pray that you would protect us from misunderstanding. I pray that you would protect us from distraction. Lord, give us focus and impart your knowledge uh, to our hearts and to our minds. We want to know you more. We want to praise you more. We want to be more like Christ. We know that we cannot do this apart from the work of your Spirit in us, and so we invite your Spirit to be filling us even this morning. And give us a sense of your presence as you glorify yourself through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It truly is a blessing just to be together, um, just to continue our celebration, really, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do that not only last Sunday, but we do it uh, this morning. We do it really every morning. We ought to, uh, every day of our lives. Uh, I want to quickly just say a word of thanks to uh, Steve uh, for just the, the way in which you uh, really facilitated worship. Uh, the, the, the songs that we get to sing, uh, as I'm standing here this morning, uh, I have the benefit of not being a back row Baptist. I can be up front and I get to hear all of those voices behind me. And I, I had the sense that genuine praise was being lifted up. Uh, uh, and I'm just so thankful for the fact that uh, songs were picked out prayerfully. Uh, songs were picked out very intentionally, and, and these are not those 7-Eleven types of songs, you know, the ones with seven words that are repeated 11 times. Uh, no, these, these are songs that are really grounded in biblical truth, and, and what a joy it is to sing them together. What a joy it is to, to be able to hear them being sung as well. And so for all this, we say all glory be to God, and we're so thankful that uh, he led Steve and Donnell to NBC. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, allow me just to uh, say a quick word of welcome Welcome. Uh, it is good to see you. Uh, it, we do, truly do consider it a privilege to have you joining us. Uh, as we set our hearts and our, our minds on bringing worship to God, uh, we, we just rejoice in you being here with us as we do that. Um, our normal preaching pastor, our lead pastor, is not here this morning. Uh, he had just finished up a, a preaching series, a sermon series entitled, Who We Are. Um, and if you're new with us this morning, or if you missed a couple of those sermons, I would encourage you to find them on our church website, makakilachurch.org, um, and listen to those. I, I don't know about you, uh, I personally found them very helpful. And just thinking about what it is that we believe, uh, those who consider themselves Christians and, and Protestants and, and um, Reformed and, and, uh, and Baptists, what, what is it that we believe? What do we hold to? How does our life uh, impacted by these, these beliefs? And so I would just encourage you to check out those sermons. It should give you a little more insight to who we are as a church, and hopefully they'll be as encouraging to you as they were to me. Um, next week, if the Lord wills, Pastor John will be leading us back into uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew verse by verse uh, for over two years now with a couple little breaks here and there, uh, but I'm really looking forward to getting back into Matthew uh, next week, and if the Lord wills, that's what we'll do. But for this morning, uh, we get to get back into Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this morning, our focus is going to be on verses one or, or verses uh, 19 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Uh, and again, our focus is going to be on 19 through 23, but we're going to read from verse 15 all the way down through verse 23. Now, this was written as one long sentence, and it really bears to, to read it together. Follow along as I read aloud. This is the word of God in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I have to confess that uh, this past week as I was uh, studying as I was preparing my sermon, I kind of geeked out a little bit uh, because uh, right on the heels of, of, of great Resurrection Sunday morning uh, where we were really focused on the resurrection of Christ, uh, I realized that this morning I get to present to you another text with the focus of being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is, this is truly a blessing. Uh, I didn't plan things this way. Uh, I couldn't possibly plan things this way. It's just how things worked out by God's grace. And um, I just really enjoyed this past week of, of studying this passage, and I hope it's one that is truly instructive and encouraging for you as well. Uh, the amazing truth of Christ's resurrection, and certainly it's at the heart of Easter Sunday. Uh, it's also at the heart of, of the Christian faith, and by God's grace, it's at the heart of this passage this morning. And so as we seek to better understand uh, this text that's before us, uh, we do well to consider it in its context. We, we want to remember what Paul was doing and writing this portion of his letter. Uh, Paul started with this letter with an incredible, uh, really a Trinitarian song of praise. Um, He was reminding the readers of all the spiritual blessings that had been lavished upon them uh, by God through Jesus Christ. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, revelation, inheritance, salvation, even the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul was blessing God for the way that God had blessed us through Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then Paul moved on to lifting up a prayer of thanksgiving for the faith of these Ephesians who believed in Jesus and who had love for all the saints. And part of that prayer included a a supplication for knowledge. Paul asked God to give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him. And specifically, Paul asked that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened uh, so that they could know three things. Uh, first, so he asked that they could know the hope uh, to which they had been called. And second, he, he asked that they would know the, the riches of their inheritance. And third, to know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And we looked at those first two requests last time we were in Ephesians together. And so this morning, we're going to focus on, on that third request. Paul was praying for the readers of his letter to know 
the power of God. And this seems like quite an undertaking, doesn't it? I mean, how, how can we, as very finite creatures with very, very finite minds, how, how can we comprehend the immeasurable greatness of the power of an infinite God? Uh, that word itself, immeasurable, it, it kind of gives us this understanding that we can't understand it. It's beyond our searching. It's beyond our knowledge. So how can we know the unknowable? Well, according to what we see in this passage, it all starts with prayer. In this prayer, on behalf of the Ephesian believers, Paul provides at least three examples or, or three demonstrations of God's power. First, God demonstrates his power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, that can be point number one in your outline. God demonstrates his power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 19 and 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Stop there. Not only did the resurrection of Jesus Christ validate that God accepted the sacrifice of the Son on the cross, but it was also a clear demonstration of God's power. When describing such power, Paul would just start throwing descriptive adjectives at it. It's an indescribable power, but that didn't stop Paul from trying to describe it. He used a word from which we get the English word dynamite. He used another word from which we get the English word energy. Then he went on to use a word that means strength or might, from which we get the English word autocrat. And then he would use another word which simply means strength or power, dynamite, energy, strength, power. Uh, all of these were used to describe what God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know that this analogy is certainly going to fall, fall short uh, in comparison to the power of God in, in raising Jesus from, from the dead, but uh, hopefully it's, it'll be helpful just to kind of see what Paul was doing in this. Uh, just kind of picture yourself standing in front of a huge bulldozer. You know, one of those great big yellow things that's got the big scoop in front and, and you don't, can't even stand up halfway to the, to the tires and, and there's this great big smokestack. As you stand in front of such a bulldozer, you, you have a, a sense of the potential of power in this vehicle. Uh, but then somebody starts up the engine and, and a big puff of sm smoke comes out of that stack and, and then you start feeling the earth actually shaking under your feet and, and that bulldozer starts lurching forward and you have a better sense of, of how powerful this vehicle is. And then that bulldozer starts doing the thing that bulldozers does or do, and it starts knocking down buildings and, and, and hitting over trees, and, and the whole root ball comes up, and, and you have an even better sense of the power of this vehicle. That's kind of what Paul was doing in this part of his prayer. In an effort to have his readers know the power of God, he, just cho he chose not to simply say that God is powerful. No, he started throwing more and more words at it. Um, he added strength and, and energy and dynamite, and in so doing, the reader should have a better understanding of what he's talking about, what this immeasurable power of God is. And the first evidence that Paul set before the Ephesians of that incomprehensible power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor John, he invited us to walk a mile in the sandals of, of the ladies who had been following Jesus. Uh, they watched the Romans beat and crucify and murder Jesus. And, and they saw how and, and where Joseph of Arimathea had laid the body of Jesus. 
And they went to the tomb early in the morning on the first day, uh, bringing with them the spices and ointments that they had been preparing since the night before. These women obviously had not anticipated the resurrection of Christ. They were trying to prepare the body for, for a burial with these spices and with these ointments. And this in spite of the fact that Jesus had told his followers at least three times uh, that he would die and that he would rise again. All three of the synoptic writers uh, recorded these predictions, uh, but we'll quick, quickly take a look at Luke's record. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, looking at verse 21. Luke chapter 9, and this is right on the tale of Peter uh, confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 21, Luke writes, And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And just a little bit later in that same chapter, Luke wrote about the incredible events uh, that took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he recorded how Jesus had healed a demon-possessed boy. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 43, it says this, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his believers, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then finally in Luke chapter 18, turn over there, just a few pages, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, Jesus gave an, an even more detailed prediction about what was soon to happen to him. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Uh, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, even though Jesus had told them plainly that he was going to be killed by the Gentiles and that he would rise on the third day, his disciples didn't understand any of this. Uh, certainly the saying had been hidden from them, but I think there's another reason why they didn't understand this. It's because this sort of thing just didn't happen, right? Before Christ came in the flesh, uh, people who died stayed dead, right? When you're dead, when you're dead you stayed dead. Uh, this was the case for thousands of years of human history, now, now, when we read the crucifixion account uh, recorded in Scripture, we do so with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, we know the rest of the story. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. But up from the grave, he arose. It's, it's by God's grace that we know this. Uh, but when you think about the disciples, they didn't have this. This was un unfolding before their very eyes. It wasn't until the angels at the empty tomb reminded them of Jesus' words that they finally began to understand. Look at Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 5. Luke chapter 24, verse 5 says, And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The women remembered Christ's words, and they started to understand and to, and to believe. And they shared the good news of Christ's resurrection with the apostles, but they still didn't believe. Why such unbelief? Because no cre- created being had ever been given authority over death. Uh, this sort of thing simply did not happen. Uh, but Jesus is not a created being. He is God of very God. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He said that by him all things were created. He said that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Apostle John said that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. said that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. As the apostles became eyewitnesses of God's power in the resurrection of Christ, the light bulbs finally started to go on. We already read in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, that an unbelieving Peter ran to the tomb. And when he saw those cloths sitting by themselves, Then he started to understand, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Think about doubting Thomas. Finally, when he saw the resurrected Christ, do you remember what he said? What was his exclamation? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to a tree by men who were skilled at killing people. He gave up his spirit, and he died a very real physical death on the cross. Even his opponents knew that he was dead. Uh, They didn't try to come up with some sort of harebrained idea like that he was only mostly dead or that there was some sort of swooning. No, they knew that he was dead. He He was buried in a tomb. And then on the third day, God demonstrated an immeasurably great power, a dynamite, energy, strength kind of power. And in praying for the Ephesians to know this immeasurable greatness of God's power, Paul reminded them that God demonstrated such power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul didn't stop there. Uh, He went on and on and on in verses 20 and 21, uh, describing this power that God worked when he raised Jesus from the dead. He says, then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Point number two, God demonstrates his power in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his power in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't leave much wiggle room here for his readers. Uh, There's no room to ask that question like, well, what about uh, Alexander the Great? Or, Or what about Nero? 
Uh, there's no such power. There are some things that Paul writes that are difficult to understand, but this isn't one of them. Uh, in his attempts to describe the immeasurable greatness of God's power, Paul moved from, from the resurrection of Jesus to the exaltation of Jesus. And once he got started, it seemed that he really did have trouble stopping. First, we see that Jesus is seated. And Jesus is seated. This is what theologians refer to as the session of Jesus. Uh, now, when, the, when a judge comes into a courtroom and takes his or her seat, the, the bailiff announces that court is now in session. Uh, this is the same, so, same sort of idea. Uh, and this should be something that we find very reassuring, that Jesus is seated in his heavenly throne. He rules from his throne. He reigns. He is the king of kings. Uh, he is the Lord of lords. He's not pacing in heaven. He's not trying to figure out what he ought to do in light of what just happened in our lives. No, he is sovereign over all things. Whatever he ordains is right. He is seated. And secondly, we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul's using metaphorical language here, so don't let that trip you up. God is spirit. God doesn't have a right hand per se. But Paul is referring to a position of, of privilege, uh, of honor, of favor, and victory, and power. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules in perfect justice, with all knowledge, with all power, with all goodness. Next, we see that to what heights Jesus has ascended, to what heights God has exalted him. After being resurrected from the dead, uh, after walking around on the earth for 40 days, uh, sometimes appearing to just a couple of disciples, other times to appearing to as many as 500, Jesus then ascended to the heavenly places. In the heavenly places, Jesus is not only above all rule, but he is far above all rule. Not only is he above all authority, but he is far above all authority. Not only is he above all power, but he is far above all power. You see where we're going with this, right? Not only is he above all dominion, but he is far above all dominion. And Paul didn't stop there. He said that Jesus is above every name that is named. And not only is he above every name that is named in this age, he's above every name that is named in the age to come as well. In Philippians 2, Paul wrote that God has highly exalted Jesus and that he has bestowed on him the name is, that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. And Peter said in a sermon recorded in Acts 4 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Paul's explanation of God's power and Christ's exaltation, he was also setting before the Ephesians a, a watertight argument for the supremacy of Christ. Paul's point is that Jesus is above all earthly powers. He's above all Heavenly powers. He is above all power. Think of any ruler throughout history. Christ is greater. Think about anybody who has accrued a, 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 any sort of level of authority. Christ has far more authority. Think of any sort of authoritative ruler who has accrued all kinds of dominion. Christ's dominion is far, far greater than any of those. 
And God demonstrated his immeasurably great power, not only in the resurrection of Jesus, but also by showing and, and demonstrating his power in the, in the great heights to which he has exalted Christ in his exaltation. Then in verse 22, Paul provides his readers with yet another demonstration of the greatness of God's power. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Now point number three, God demonstrates his power in the subjection of all things under Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his power in the subjection of all things under Jesus Christ. And this one really does go hand in hand uh, with the exaltation of Jesus Christ, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But, but Paul, the point that Paul was making was that not only is every power inferior to Jesus, but, but every power is subject to Jesus. And Paul was quoting from the eighth psalm there at verse 6, which says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Everything whether friend or foe, has been brought into submission under the headship of Jesus Christ. This includes sin. Uh, this includes death. This includes the church. And some of you might be asking, well, well, how can this be? Sin still exists. Uh, I don't have to look past my, uh, my own mirror to know that sin still exists in the world. Uh, death is still a reality. We're reminded of that daily. How, how is it that sin and death can be defeated? How have they been brought under submission if they still exist in this world? We have to recognize that there, there is an already not yet aspect to all things coming under submission or into submission under Christ. Uh, Christ defeated death. He defeated sin in his resurrection. But there's still a, a not yet aspect of that. I think Hebrews chapter 2 uh, verses 8 and 10 are very helpful to, in, in this understanding this passage. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is, this is a huge passage. God left nothing outside of Christ's control. In this present age, however, we, we, do, we still do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see that yet, but there will come a time. You can trust Revelation 21 that this is true, where there shall be no more death. There shall neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Christ will wipe away every tear. Revelation 21 verse 4 assures us of that truth. And this is why we can join in Paul and singing, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of de death is sin, and, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These are remarkable uh, truths. These are transformational truths. Now, these are truths that demand our daily thoughts, our meditations. Uh, these are truths that should compel us to trust, uh, to obey uh, to submit to an all-powerful God. 
And thus far, we've seen in Paul's prayer that he wanted the Ephesians to know the power of God, and so he set forth before them those three demonstrations of God's immeasurable greatness, uh, of the immeasurable greatness of his power. First, God demonstrates his power in the resurrection of Christ. Secondly, in the, in the exaltation of Christ. And third, in the subjection of all things under Christ. The last thing I want you to make note of is, is that in this passage, this power, uh, this dynamite, this, this strength, all of this is toward us who believe. Point number four, God's power is toward us who believe. You see that back in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? First, take note of the fact that that Paul is not asking for God to give power to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul, Paul was asking instead that they would have an awareness of the power that was already theirs in Christ. Uh, Paul wanted God to illuminate their, their hearts, the eyes of their hearts, uh, so that they could understand that through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they have the very power of God at their disposal. If you have repented of sin, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the power of God living inside you. Romans 8 is really helpful here, starting at verse 8. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What does this mean? This means that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that exalted Jesus above all rule and power and authority and dominion, the same power that subjected all things under the headship of Jesus Christ, this power is now at work in you who believe in him. Without the power of God, no one individual would ever become a believer in Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul's getting ready to make in his letter. Uh, He's laying the foundation for the Ephesians to see and to know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God in their own salvation. I'll give you a sneak peek into into our next study the next time we're in Ephesians. Look over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Again, we'll take a look at this next time, but I'll just give you a a quick peek at it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, And you were dead. Stop there. You were dead. Uh, What Paul was fixing to tell the Ephesians was that there was as great a difference uh, between their present and their former conditions as there was between Christ in the tomb and Christ at the right hand of the Father. This was something that they needed to know. This is something that we need to know. The early church father, Chrysostom, wrote, the conversion of souls is more wonderful than the resurrection of the dead. Ecumenius wrote, to raise us from spiritual death is an exercise of the same power that raised Jesus from natural death. Uh, We'll go into greater detail in this next time we're in Ephesians together, but suffice it to say that the salvation of a soul is accomplished by the power of God and by the power of God alone. The salvation of a soul is the resurrection of a spiritually dead soul. 
It, it takes the power of God to bring something back from the dead. It takes the power of God to, for anyone to triumph over sin, uh, for anyone to persevere in the midst of, of great suffering, for anyone to live a godly life. The power of God has to be in them. And the truth, the truth is that we need God's power. Uh, the entire world system is at enmity with God and, and with all who would follow him. Uh, we battle against the world system. We battle against our own flesh. We battle against a, a crafty enemy named Satan. Each and every day, we, we have this onslaught of, of temptation and spiritual warfare that's taking place that we don't even know about. Martin Luther rightly concluded, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We need God to give us strength just, just to make it through the day. So the question is, why don't we rely upon this, this great power, which is toward us who believe? Why, why do we live as if the Holy Spirit of God is, is not in us? You know, why do we try to go it alone? Why do we live as the overwhelmed rather than as the overcomers? There are obviously a number of answers to those questions. I think uh, first, we often, far too often, have too lofty of a, a view of ourselves. Uh, we don't trust in God, but instead we lean on our own understanding. We, we don't acknowledge Him, and, and we set out on our own path, and, and that's to our own demise. Our focus is on ourself and not on God. We don't realize or admit our complete dependence upon God. And secondly, I think all, all too often we have too small a view of God. We, we lack knowledge or, or we simply don't believe what God has revealed to us in his word. I, I think this is what Paul was combating here in his letter to the Ephesians. He was praying repeatedly that these believers would grow in their knowledge of God. Lastly, I think we're forgetful uh, and we're just not diligent in what we set our mind on. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter gave a list of qualities and he said that if these qualities are ours and if they're increasing, then they will keep us from, from being ineffective or, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he said that whoever lacks these qualities, faith, uh, virtue, knowledge, Self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, or brotherly affection and love. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. I think it's easy to be forgetful. I think it's easy, uh, especially for gray-haired men, uh, to be forgetful. Uh, I think it's especially easy for gray-haired men with gray beards to be forgetful. Uh, but I don't think I'm alone in this. I think it's true of women. I think it's true of children. It, it's easy to be forgetful. Uh, if we could just wake up in the morning and, and be distracted by so many things, if our, if our focus is on, on what's happening in the here and now, we will truly so quickly forget what we need to be remembering. I'm going to close by sharing a quick illustration with you. Um, back in 1937, uh, at the New London Consolidated School, in Rusk County, Texas, uh, there was a natural gas explosion at the school, and it killed uh, 295 students and teachers. Uh, this was a tragedy that really devastated the entire town and, and all of the surrounding areas. And it happened uh, in the midst of the, the Depression, but there was still a great amount of money 
from oil and from natural gas in that area, so they quickly rebuilt the school. It was completely, completely destroyed, but they ended up rebuilding it. And they did so with what was touted as the, the finest sprinkler system in the world. Uh, the, fire, the explosion had created a fire in the school and it burned down. And so they rebuilt it with this, this finest sprinkler system in the world. And, and the people of New London were so proud of, of this construction. They were so proud of this sprinkler system. They would have honor students give tours of the school and, um, of the, for the townspeople, for visitors. And they would be showing off the, you know, the most advanced technology in sprinkler systems that money could buy. And they were really proud of this thing. And, and as the economy improved, uh, more people were moving into the area, and so it became necessary to add on another wing to the school. And so seven years after they initially reopened it, uh, they started construction on a new wing to make it a bigger school. And it was at that time that they discovered that this sprinkler system had never been connected to the water main. They were so proud of this thing, but it had never been connected to the water main. And, and this story is it's really a, power, a parable of what happens in the lives of many Christians. Uh, there's an, this immeasurably great power in Christ that we have, but so many of us uh, just don't even connect to that power. We live ineffective and, and unfruitful lives. Uh, my hope is that this would not be true of any of us at NBC, uh, and that if it is, that hearing this word would transform us, that it would renew our minds, that it would renew the way that we approach our faith. Listen to the words of of Jesus recorded in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We must abide in Christ and he in us. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have the very power of God. Apart from Christ, we have and are nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we be found to be abiding in you, in you and us. If there are any in, within earshot of my voice who have not turned from sin and, and turned to you in faith, I ask that you would make that reality known to them. Make, and, make them see and understand their spiritual condition. Uh, may they know and really realize the desperation of their situation. Grant them repentance and belief by your grace. If there are any who have been saved by your grace, but who are living ineffective or, or unfruitful lives, I ask that you would empower them even now, Lord, to, to see their need to abide in you, to draw them to you and make them more like Christ. Glorify yourself, Lord, through us. May all glory be to you forever and ever through every generation. Amen. All right, please stand with me as I offer up our benediction.
Uh, Finally, brothers and sisters, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard even this morning. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Go now in grace and peace.